Thank you, Hannah. And Mama's crying back there. Even though it's Father's Day, Mama's crying back there. So, <clears throat> Well, Happy Father's Day to everyone. Because just like motherhood, you know, fatherhood is a gift from God. And we've all benefited from it. And you know, in this church, throughout the years that we've been here, I have just seen examples of really uh, stellar fatherhood that I have benefited from, from different men throughout the years here. And so it's so nice to be part of a church where you can see you know, people older and see how they handle things, family matters, and that, things like that, and have good examples before you. So I thank God for that. And I thank God for this church. You know, when Jesus taught during his short time on the earth, much of his teaching centered on his heavenly father. He also taught quite a bit about his father's kingdom. But I believe one reason that so much of Jesus' teaching centered on his father was because the Jewish religious leaders of that day did not have a very accurate picture of God the Father. And if there is one aspect of your faith that you don't want to be way off the mark on, it would be your view of God the Father, right? I mean, he's at the center of everything. So how accurate would you say your picture of God the Father is? You know, there's a famous quip about God that has been around for many years and it's been attributed to different people because I think different people have used it through history. Uh, one person is Mark Twain that it's been attributed to. But it says, God created man in his image, then man returned the favor. Now this morning in honor of Father's Day, I would like to look into a passage of scripture that can teach us a very important lesson about God the Father. It was given by an expert on God the Father, namely his only begotten son, Jesus. And even as we look into this passage and just the couple of verses that lead up to the teachings of Jesus, they even reveal quite a bit about the Father. So I'm going to be in... Luke chapter 15 this morning, <clears throat> and the stories are going to be familiar, but we're going to see some good things about God's gift of fatherhood. In the first two verses of chapter 15 of Luke, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Now you know something bad's coming up when they start muttering, right? He said, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So that quick bit of information right there is very key. 
The people gathering to listen to Jesus, you know, really wanting to hear him, were not a part of the elite, were they? Or the respected. In fact, I think we can say that the religious leaders saw these people as lowlifes, as undesirables, and even to the point of scum of the earth. And how did these religious leaders, these Pharisees and teachers of the law and such, how did they think that these people listening to Jesus should be treated? Well, you know, they criticized Jesus for being, even being with them. They thought they should be shunned or rejected or looked down upon with disgust. And the religious leaders thought that it was an act of holiness or righteousness on their part to reject these sinners or sneer at them or stay away from them and treat them as disgusting. Yet, here was Jesus spending his time with them, helping them, mixing with them, even eating with them. So how could Jesus, this man Jesus, be a true man of God if he doesn't reject the people that God rejects? That's the thinking of the Pharisees and religious leaders. So Jesus tells these religious leaders three stories in response to their muttering. And the first one, they're all in this passage, but look at the first two verses of this story, verses 3 and 4 of Luke 15. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? So the religious leaders were criticizing Jesus for spending time with these outcasts. The people the religious leaders called sinners. Now we know that they hated tax collectors because they worked for the Roman government. But sinners could have been like, you know, different levels of people that they despised. Maybe they didn't observe their religious rites. Maybe they didn't attend Sabbath worship. Maybe they didn't follow all the dictates of the religious leaders or give them as much respect as they thought they deserved. And you know, it could be any of those things and it could also be all the way down to some of them may have been drunkards, the sexually immoral, the foul-mouthed fishermen. You know, Jesus drew people to himself, all kinds of different people. And the religious leaders took great pride in not living like these people. In fact, they took pride in shunning them and rejecting them. And of course, never, ever, ever eating with them. And they considered that their hatred of these people to be a badge of honor, a part of, a part of their holiness and their godliness and their faithfulness to God to just stay away from these people. So how could Jesus even pretend to be a man of God when he mixes with these kinds of people, these unholy people? 
they measured their holiness by their rejection and shunning of this type of people. So Jesus points them to something very, very familiar in their culture. And he asks them, and he's not, it's not a trick question, it's just something they all know, right? He asks them, what happens when a shepherd realizes that one of his sheep is missing? Does he curse at it? Does he try to spit on it or reject it or shun it? And, and if he finds it, does he cast it forever out of the field or out of the fold? No, Jesus says his automatic response, and everybody knows this that's listening to him, his automatic response is to go searching for it. And he wants it back so badly that he leaves these 99 sheep out in the open field. That means they're unprotected. But he wants that sheep. Now we may say, in our day and time, we may say, it's only one sheep. You still have 99% of what you brought out to the, to the, to the pasture. But, you know, that isn't even a thought to the shepherd. He sees that the sheep is gone, and boom, he's out looking for it. Even having to leave the 99 to get it, that's how badly he wants to bring that sheep back into the fold. You know, I was once invited to go on a cattle drive. It wasn't one of those that start in Texas and end up in Kansas, you know, to meet the train, like in the old the cowboy days. This was over in Coldwater, Kansas, and they used to ask me to do things with them just so, you know, the preacher could get a taste of what it's like to do these different farm and ranching things. And so <clears throat> they uh, put me on a horse, and we were moving this cattle probably a, a mile down the dirt road or maybe two miles, you know, and they put me on this horse that I don't think could run, and, and I had to keep trying to get it to stop, from, uh, keep stopping it from stopping to eat while we, were, while we were going, and I didn't know how to do that. But as we were going, all of a sudden, one of the steers just bolted off into an open field. And as soon as that happened, the second that happened, two of these cowboys bolted off after it like lightning. I mean, they were really cowboying. They were going after that steer. And you know, when a steer gets away from the, the herd, it gets scared. And then when people are chasing it, it gets more scared. So they were really doing some cowboying to get that, that steer. And it almost looked like they were hoping a steer would bolt off so they could just do that. <laughs> kind of brought excitement to the day. Well, <clears throat> I saw what they were doing. And I saw what I couldn't do. And so I just said, with no one hearing, I'll just stay here with the herd. <laughs> and that took quite enough work for me. But anyway, I witnessed that day what happens when a steer leaves the herd and bolts off. And you know what? When that happened, there was no discussion. There was no strategizing. There was no drawing straws. There was no, you know, yelling at the steer. 
boom, they were off to get it. They were going to go get that steer and they were going to bring it back. That steer was valuable to them. And that's what we have here. When a shepherd realizes one of his sheep is missing, he just goes and gets it. Even if he leaves 99 out in the open field. And then, in verses 5 and 6, it says, And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. He's full of joy, isn't he? I mean, he found that sheep. He brings it back. He's so joyful. Now, you would think, probably, I would think, that he would just go back, put it with the fold, and just go on. But he's so happy to have it back that he calls his neighbors and wants them to rejoice with him, to celebrate with him. And so you see how much he loved that sheep. And then, then Jesus lowers the boom. I tell you, that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Wow, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, what makes heaven rejoice, what makes God happy is when one of these low-life sinners that you guys are muttering about repents of their sins and turns to God for forgiveness. Even more than the 99 self-righteous people who feel or think that they have no need to repent. He's basically saying to these muttering religious leaders, there is more rejoicing in heaven when one miserable low life recognizes their sin and turns to God in repentance than when over a hundred self-righteous religious leaders who look so good on the outside but refuse to repent for their wickedness and their hard heart attitudes. That's what he's saying behind his words. He's saying God is much more delighted when one of these low-life sinners who you won't be seen with repents of their sins and turns to God for forgiveness than the hundred of you muttering Pharisees who think you're too holy to be seen with these kind of people and consider yourselves no, in no need of repentance. The celebration in heaven is over the repentant sinner. And Jesus is saying, the heart of our heavenly father is like that of the shepherd who goes after the one lost sheep, puts it on his shoulders, takes it back, and calls all of his friends to celebrate with him. That's the heart of God the Father. And then he gives another brief story <clears throat> describing the father's heart toward the lost it's the next three verses, 8 through 10. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, 
sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Here again, a coin is lost, one of ten. And the woman goes to, you know, everything she has to do to find that coin. Lights the lamp, sweeps the house, searches carefully and searches and searches until she finds it. She goes to all those links and she's so happy she calls her neighbors and she wants them to celebrate with her. And Jesus says, this is comparable to the rejoicing that takes place in heaven when a lost person repents of their sins and turns to God. So we have a clear pattern here. Someone who needs to repent. We have someone who is clearly in the wrong. The heart attitude of the religious leaders is shun that person, cast that person out, don't talk with him, reject him. He isn't worthy of the company of us righteous ones. But the heart of God is, I want him back. He's my lost sheep. And when that lost sheep is found, there's rejoicing in heaven. And now we come to one of the most well-known, well-loved stories in the Bible. And again, in this story, we're looking for the heart of God toward the lost. And so, <clears throat> we'll look from verses 11 through 19 first. Or 10 through 19. Boy, it keeps going too. Uh, he says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So here's 11 through 19. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole, in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to, to his fields to feed pigs. And that was pretty demeaning for a Jewish person because pigs were um, animals they weren't supposed to. You know, they were unclean animals and they didn't even take care of them. <clears throat> he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You know, this son, his actions and his words are saying, I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. Please give me my inheritance. That's one sign that he doesn't want to be a part of the family anymore because that wouldn't have come until later. 
It says he goes out to a distant country, so like he's leaving, really leaving. And he says that by turning away from his family values, his family's values. Careless spending, wild living. I mean, he's just making a complete cut with his family. But then, of course, he reaps the consequences of his foolish choices. He runs out of his friends, money, food. And Jesus talks about him coming to his senses. And it's like, look at me. Look how I've ended up. My father's servants live better than I do. And so this prodigal son returns to his home with a totally repentant attitude. And he's planned an offer to give his father a humble offer to be taken back as a servant and not a son. You know, to give up all of his rights, to be put at the lowest part of, his house, of the household. So now he's been completely humbled. He's, he's accepted that lesson. He's going back repentant. So now, at this point, as the son returns... How should he be treated? He walked away, right? He cut off all of his ties to his family. He rejected his family's values. He took his share of the inheritance and just threw it away. He deserves nothing, right? And as the Pharisees are listening to this story that Jesus is telling, what do you think is going through their minds? What would they say to this son? What would their hearts be like? You know, considering the way that they were muttering about Jesus welcoming, mixing with, and eating with sinners... What would their advice be to that father? What would they say the righteous thing would be to do? Wouldn't they probably say that the father should tell that son, you had your chance. You shamed us all. We stayed here and did the work. We kept up the property. We kept up the business. And you spent all of your inheritance. And now you want us to let you come back? That's probably what the Pharisees were thinking, don't you think? But look at the Father's answer in the next few verses, 20 through 24. So... The prodigal son, he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Well, the son comes back totally humbled, totally repentant, making an offer to his father to just be a servant. He comes back, just, just think of that spirit he comes back in and the mindset that he comes back with. He comes back to agree to any terms that they would impose upon him because his heart has truly changed. He has truly repented. But the father doesn't even listen to his proposal, does he? He just says, let the celebration begin. He hugs his son in complete joy and acceptance. His father's not worried about any reparations or any demotion or payback or trial period or any scolding. He just wants his son back. And he's so ecstatic about his return that he orders this major celebration. So, you know, the Father shows us the heart of God the Father when a sinner turns to him in repentance. There is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 self-righteous persons who think they need no repentance. And those are the words that Jesus was using to explain his father's heart attitude towards the lost, towards sinners. The father, God the father longs to welcome repentant sinners. He delights in welcoming repentant sinners. He wants to bring them back into the fold. That's his joy, and that's the celebration that goes on in heaven to bring a sinner into the fold of God. But you know, not everyone is happy with the son being brought back into the family. The older brother doesn't think it's the right thing to do. The older brother complains that he never got a party thrown for him, and he never went off and spent all of the money. And of course, in the story, the the older brother represents the Pharisees and the religious leaders. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn that the true heart attitude of God towards sinners or the lost is that he loves them and he wants them back. We know that when someone turns away from God... Or that when someone refuses to come to God for help or forgiveness. Or they choose to live a life full of sinfulness. Even flaunting their sin, their drunkenness, their immorality. Even to the point of mocking God. God seeks that person to turn back to him. He wants that person to turn to him. 
And we've heard stories of people that have been in those situations. And they've come to God after years of fighting against him and mocking him. They've come to God and God welcomes them in. And they become whole different people. He changes their whole thinking and their, their lives. But, you know, it's easy for us to think like the big brother, isn't it? <clears throat> it's easy to fall into that trap. I remember being so thankful for God's offer of salvation back when I was led to Christ. And just reveling in God's gracious gift after, you know, going in another direction for a long time. But, you know, it didn't take a real long time before I would look at other sinners in disgust even though I had been there before myself, and think, how could they do that? So it's pretty easy to fall into that trap, I think. Easy to have the heart of the big brother. So I think through stories like this, and just our knowledge of God, and how, how accurate is our knowledge of God, we have to keep reminding ourselves of the love of our Heavenly Father. How He longs for lost sheep to come to Him. How His heart breaks for those who are lost in sin. And I believe we, have to re we need to remind ourselves of our Heavenly Father's love for lost sinners for the sake of others. And then for our own sakes, when we fail or sin. When we fail or sin, God wants us to come back. He doesn't want us to run away and just hide. Although that's what we feel like doing. He's welcoming us. If he wants an unsaved sinner to come to him and his heart goes out to that person, then his heart will go out to us when we sin. He longs for us to return to him. But we have to really kind of drill that into our hearts and brains, don't we? And then lastly, <clears throat> we fathers or uncles or big brothers, we need to keep reminding ourselves not to be muttering Pharisees or resentful big brothers but have that hard attitude of our Heavenly Father. You know, the big brother, all he could think of was himself. I never got a party. Of course, the father said, well, you have everything of mine already. But we have to keep reminding ourselves, I think, that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one lost sinner who repents the 99 self-righteous persons who see no need of repentance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the stories, the parables of Jesus. It's amazing that we even have them. And we thank you for the brilliance and the wisdom of Jesus and how his stories have carried on throughout the millennia. And how so many people, even unbelievers, hold him up 
as probably the best person that ever lived. So we thank you for sending him. We thank you for your heart of searching for lost sinners to come to you. And we thank you for being the great and ultimate father, full of love and care, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.